It's time again for the Mortgage Minute with Doug Krause, brought to you by Financial Residency. Doug has been a mortgage lender for over 20 years and specializes in physician loans. He is with BMO Bank and wrote a book called The Hippocratic House to educate physicians on home loans. You can request your free copy at DougKrause.com. You can call or text Doug anytime at 816-728-3631 or email him at Doug.Krause at BMO.com. Now, get ready for today's episode of Mortgage Minute. Welcome back to the Mortgage Minute. I'm your host, Doug Krause with BMO Bank. This time around, I want to cover what happens when you apply for a mortgage. It is a hard inquiry. I get asked all the time, is this a soft check or a hard check? Don't do anything that's a soft check except for pre-closing just to see that after you've been approved and your loan sitting there ready to go, that you didn't go out and buy you know, a big boat, a new car, and no longer qualify. But anything short of that, if you're filling out a mortgage, expect it to be a hard inquiry. But that's okay. It's needed. I mean, that's just part of the process. And I think a lot of people with really good credit get hung up on the idea of why going to have a big impact. My personal opinion, just viewing over the years and watching credit and how it affects part of my book. I think I've even got a chapter about this, but I think you'll lose between three to 10 points and it's not a one size fits all. Somebody with a very thin credit profile makes a little difference than somebody that has three car loans and a mortgage and five credit cards probably has less impact on them. But expect three to 10 points as a typical ding on your credit, so to speak. From what I can tell, it looks like 30 days, you're getting half your points back at the end of 60. It never happened. So if you've got 800 credit scores, doesn't matter. But Getting an application in and knowing where you stand absolutely does. So don't get so hung up on not wanting your credit pulled that you don't have your ducks in a row for whenever you go to make an offer on a house. But what to expect whenever you apply for a loan? I want to go over that. So most of us are digital online application. You fill that out. Not everybody, but I think the majority of us are collect your documentation digitally, meaning it's a secure portal into your loan after you fill out the application. Gives you the opportunity to upload pay stubs, bank statements, W2s, stuff like that. We even have one step further where you can basically give the system access and it just goes directly to your like checking banking and pulls the statements for you. You don't even have to have them saved in a PDF doesn't work for everybody. It depends on the bank, but it's a pretty slick process. I'm still a little old school. I probably prefer not to give login information and I think it's extremely secure, but at the same time, a PDF, I'd rather upload that to a secure portal. But when you're filling out an application, you should have either or two pay stubs or your future employment contract or offer letter. I actually prefer offer letter if you have that over an employment contract. And reason for that is the employment contract could have contingencies on it. My bank will take the offer letter if you have it. So the offer letter typically has start date, employer, they sign it, you sign it, income, that's good enough. And then there is no, hey, you need to pass your drug test and hey, you have to get your state license, medical license, or 
your DEA or whatever other contingencies a, a contract could have multiple. Sometimes you're just going to have to give the contract because sometimes it has the details that an offer letter maybe doesn't give enough information, especially those of you that have like a structure. I'm just going to use an ER doctor as an example where it says you're going to work 12 to 15 shifts, eight to 12 hours a shift, 24 for some of you, know, but, and then the hourly rate. And that's how we're going to calculate your income. It doesn't actually spell it out to say, Hey, you're going to make 350,000 a year. It says it in that format. So in those cases, you probably don't have an offer letter that'll work, but any time you do have an offer letter, that's my preference. Anyway, back to stuff you're going to need that offer letter, that's your future job. And again, I can't speak for every lender, but the way it works with us, when you fill out an application. If you have a future job you have not started yet, that goes down as current employment because that's the job that we're going to qualify you. We don't typically look at, it's not a situation where you just finished three years of residency and we're going to use that income averaged with your new job. We're only using your new job because that's the income that's going to pay for the loan you're requesting. Having said that, we still want it. W-2s from your last two years. It's just a compliance thing. You need to treat everybody the same and look at it, but it's not going to fall into a qualifications unless you're variable type income or self-employed. Then we're absolutely looking at that, but that's a different story. But back to my point being, as you're filling out an application, the future job goes down as current employment and your current job you know, if you're leaving residency, even though you're not done yet, that goes down as previous employment because the applications are structured for the everyday person, not for somebody in the circumstance of a physician that's taking on a new job. Most people have to apply and qualify with the job they have in hand. That varies from lender to lender, but like in our case, we'll use the future income 90 days before the job starts and let you qualify and close on that income. Anyway, future job goes down as current employment, current job goes down as previous employment. Most of the time, the applications are not set up to accept a future date. So typically you would put in your current job that's going to be listed as previous as ending today and your future job that's starting three months from now as starting today. And then just need to clarify that with the uh, the loan officer you're applying with, that the start date's really this and the end date's really this date. And generally that's going to be pretty apparent with an offer letter or a contract because it's going to spell that out. It's just the software itself is not set up to handle that correctly. So once you apply, you hit submit, then we're going to pull credit. We're going to review whatever you give us and then come back to you and say, Hey, you gave us one pay stub, we need two, or you gave us one bank statement, we need two, or you gave us no assets, here's what we need. And then we're going to collect that from you. And once we've got the bare minimum for a pre-approval, then we submit it over to underwriting. They review it for, and again, this is all predicated on the idea that you're applying without being under contract. This is just a TBD to get a full pre-approval. We'll submit it to underwriting, get a pre-approval, and then it comes back. It's still going to have conditions on it. Like I said, you're not going to have appraisal, title, insurance, 
job verification, make sure that you haven't quit your job right before closing. Those kind of outstanding items aren't going to prevent you from a contingent loan approval. And that's typically what you're, you have a loan contingency date in your contract. Once you have a pre-approval, you've met loan contingency. So technically you could make your offer without a loan contingency. I would still put a, a contingency for the homeowner's insurance, just in case you run into an issue of getting homeowner's insurance. It rarely happens. Usually you can get something, but what if it comes out, you thought homeowner's insurance was going to be $2,500 and it turns out you're on a state plan that's 10,000, then that might be a reason you want out of the contract. So just keep that in mind. But otherwise that next step in the process is after it comes out of underwriting and we get a contingent loan approval, we provide that to you. That's so far superior to a prequal letter as you're making offers that you will compete much better, especially in higher end market versus something that's a prequal letter from someone like me. And, you know, if you get a prequal letter from me, I'm very confident in knowing that if I say, cause I'm not just going to give you a prequal letter and then you're going to get turned down because that's a bad look for me or not only you, but especially for the agents that, Hey, I made my decision to go with this buyer based on your letter. So, but that's not true of the whole industry. Unfortunately, like anything else, there's a fair number of people in this industry that are new and or maybe not good at their job. So underwriting approval is a much uh, more secure, assured ability to actually qualify and close versus a loan officer prequal letter. The other problem is some lenders just don't differentiate those in the way that they should. I mean, a prequal is coming from the loan officer and a pre-approval is coming from the underwriter. And I've seen many of loan officers issue letters themselves and call it a pre-approval. Anyway, after that step, then you go back to your realtor with the pre-approval letter at hand. You go out and find the right house, make offers. At that point, when you get an offer accepted, we need a copy of the executed contract. Once we get that, then we're triggering the file with the address. That's going to then require us to give you disclosures, which is a loan estimate. And at that point in time, that's when we're going to offer you a rate lock option. So when we offer you a rate lock option, you don't have to lock then, but that's the first chance you can lock. Typically, and I won't say every lender, but typically most lenders don't allow you to lock the rate until you're under contract and the lock goes with the address, meaning if you cancel this contract, then you're canceling the rate lock as well. But my suggestions in this market is going to be lock first chance you get. I don't think you can predict the rates. Definitely can't predict them as well as me. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you I can predict them with more than a 60% accuracy. So you're going to be 50 or less. So at that point, lock the interest rate. And then if rates go down enough, you're going to get another chance. If, if rates go down a quarter or more, I watch rates. We don't want you to leave and go with another bank. So I'll come back to you potentially and say, rates have improved enough. We'll see if we can get you a better rate. But if you don't lock, then you're just completely subject to the market. And it's gambling. And if you think you know the market and you think rates are going to come down, then 
that's your prerogative. You can float the rate and lock and wait it out. But I will say, having said that, it also needs to be within the right timing. So if you've got a delayed closing, you go out and put an offer and it's a five months from now bill job. Clearly, you're not going to lock that up front because rate locks become extremely expensive after you pass the 90 day mark. In my case, a 90 day rate lock tends to be an eighth of a point higher than a 60 day rate lock. And a 60 day rate lock tends to be an eighth of a point in fees. The 90 over 60 is an eighth in rate. My 60 over 30 is probably about an eighth in fees. So the perfect window for me, I think, is inside a 60 day window. That said, if you're buying new construction, builders are notorious for missing their close date. And it becomes expensive if rates are going the wrong direction and you miss your lock date. You'll have a few options with one of them being extend that rate lock to keep it, but that's not cheap. Another one would be potentially if rates are same or better, you might get a relock and it doesn't cost you anything. If it becomes too cost prohibitive to pay for the rate lock extensions and rates are not better that you get to relock for free, then another option would be just relock to the current market rate. But be mindful of that, that I rarely trust builders for their first estimation of closing and closing on time because it seems like about a 60% proposition that they actually close on the date they expect you to. But when they are ready to close, they want to close right now. So that's another reason they have all your ducks in a row. So they have penalties written into most of their contracts that when they tell you they're ready, you better be ready to close within a few days or it starts to cost you money. But anyway, back to my uh, timeline, you give us the purchase contract, we trigger it, we offer you rate locks that ends up giving you disclosures, which includes a loan estimate. After you've viewed our loan estimate, then that's when we typically would collect money for an application fee. That's not an added fee for us. That's just an upfront fee. And that goes towards our costs, such as the appraisal, because, you know, you could a week later cancel the contract to go with another lender. And in doing so, if we've ordered an appraisal on your behalf, we have to pay for it. So the application fee is just to cover that. So for instance, if we collect 500 or $800 from you at that point, after you've moved forward and asked us to order the appraisal, then if you close, that money just goes towards the cost of the appraisal and other like credit report costs, not an additional fee that we're charging you. It basically works like your earnest money that if you close, it's just credited back to you. From there, then typically we're going to bring a processor into the equation for us. Again, every bank's going to have a little different process, but this is how money works. So you're going to then be introduced to one new person beyond my team. And that's the person that typically would set up your homeowner's insurance with you that collects that information from you and gets that squared away for the bank. They do the verification of employment to make sure you didn't quit your job. If there's Couple other verifications, like if verification of rent was needed, hopefully we won't be doing that for much longer. But if it was, they talk to your landlord. If the underwriter gave a conditional approval, but they wanted a few explanations, such as you had five other lenders pull your credit, they're going to want an explanation to make sure that you don't have new credit opened that we're not aware of. 
some new debt. So they would make you provide a letter of explanation saying you were just shopping for a mortgage. It's not a problem that you talk to five other lenders. It's just a problem if you took out debt, it doesn't show up on your credit and then you don't tell us about it. They also take care of, for instance, if you're getting gift funds from family, they provide the gift letter, stuff like that. And then once they have everything else collected back up, wait on the appraisal, when it and title come in, we wrap up insurance with your insurance provider, get all that back to an underwriter to sign off on the other non-credit related outstanding items. And then from there, it comes back out with a clear to close and then moves to the closing department. And then the closing department needs to issue you a CD, which is, stands for a closing disclosure. Generally, you get two of those. The first one is an initial CD or an ICD. That one needs acknowledged. And you have to receive that one three business days prior to closing. Acknowledged at least three business days prior to closing. Without that, your closing is going to be delayed if you don't acknowledge that or if the first one you're getting is two days before your close date, then your close date's going to have to get extended. But once you get that one, then closing starts to work with your title company to reconcile what we have versus what they have. Because we don't always have all the information because some of it's not pertinent to, to the uh, loan itself. And that could be a realtor transaction fee if they're charging you a buyer's agency transaction fee. Your HOA has nothing to do with your loan other than the payment you're going to make is factored into what you qualify for, but especially new construction, you move into a new subdivision, they charge you initiation fees for your mailbox, trash can, who knows what, but they charge you that as well as they then provide what your HOA fee on an ongoing basis is going to be. Something that drastically differs between Buying a house and buying a condo is a condo questionnaire, and those can be time-consuming. If the HOA that's providing that doesn't provide it timely, then you can expect condos to take up to a week longer than a single-family house just because I found that some of the places providing those are either too busy to provide them or they don't have the motivation because it doesn't matter to them the same way it matters to your loan officer, your agent to make sure that you're closing on time. So something that when you're buying a condo, know that those take a little bit longer and it's important that the agent work with the processor to get us contact information for the HOA to get our condo questionnaire filled out because there are certain aspects of that condo questionnaire that are important as to whether or not you're going to get to close the loan or not. Then from there, like I said, you'll get a final CD after title and our closing department balance with the additional items that, like I said, weren't really loan related. And then you'll get a final number that's going to work back to on my team. One of my assistants specifically works that part of the transaction and communicates with you. And then you would plan for either a wire or uh, a cashier's check for if you have cash due at closing, you may not. You might even be getting cash back if you have a big earnest money deposit and didn't have a down payment, then you can get cash back on these transactions too. Not more than you've got in it, but again, just because you put the money in and earnest money doesn't mean that we won't still loan 100% in, most, in some cases. So anyway, then you show up to closing, make sure you have proper ID or 
If you're going to plan for a remote closing, such as a notary coming to you at work or out of state, that needs to be way up front, notify everybody because that takes extra time. Once those documents are signed, they're going to get overnighted. So definitely you need to plan for that. And then we do have other circumstances where instead of remote notary, you just outright having somebody else sign for you on your behalf using power of attorney. So also something that right up front, we would need to know if you have expectations of somebody else doing that or not being in person at the title company. So effectively the title company kind of acts like the banker thinking of it as a monopoly transaction. Title company is the banker. They get your down payment funds, that's your earnest money or your portion of funds to close, go to title. They get our loan proceeds and then they pay out the seller. They pay your realtor. They pay your insurance company and pay off whatever mortgage your seller had. So that's the kind of the process of, you know, when you apply the whole process from start to finish of how it works. So if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me. DougCross.com's got my cell phone and email address. It's Doug.Krauss at BMO.com. Cell phone number is 862-DOCTOR-LOANS. That's 862-375-6267. Thanks for listening. If you have anything I can help you with or answer any questions, feel free to reach out anytime. Thanks. Talk to you next time.